All right. Well, we are back in First Peter. It was an incredible season of Celebrate Generosity. Honestly, walking with you guys as a church has just been one of the greatest joys I could have ever imagined. And the season of Celebrate Generosity for me is one that's just, it, it is pure celebration. I, I love the opportunity to walk with a church that, uh, that sees opportunity and says, we want to be a part of what God is doing when God is doing it, where God is doing it, how God is doing it, we want to be there. I love that. And I'm so encouraged by the reactions and the responses this week. Uh, the, the dust always settles on Celebrate Generosity, but I'm, guys, I'm so excited to share with you that as of this morning, uh, about $143,000 had come in over the course of this last week for Celebrate Generosity. It's just unbelievable to think of what... what God is doing and how we get to use that to be a part of the stories around the world. I, I hope you took time to watch the videos. Honestly, we're going to leave CelebrateGenerosity.com up for a while because we want you to go and watch those videos. We want you to see the things that the, that the money is going to. So when all the dust settles and we get to tell you exactly how much goes to each place, you know exactly what's happening, like where that money is going and why it's so important that we get to be a part of that. So take some time and check those things out. They will be up there. If you haven't seen them already, CelebrateGenerosity.com. We've got great interviews and great opportunities to connect. We're moving back into First Peter. Now, I just want to give you a little bit of context for uh, why we are in First Peter and what's been said up to this point. So we, we spent 2020 uh, looking into this concept of being exiles. We had a dream last year just thinking about uh, election season, thinking about uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus in 2020. And one of, the, one of the things that we wanted to press into is what does it actually look like for us to see our our citizenship in heaven, our allegiance to God, our, our desire to serve him supersede everything else about who we are and what we do and how we live. What would it mean if we understood our role as exiles, as foreigners in a land, the land being the entirety of the globe, not any one particular nation, but as human beings existing on earth, we are sojourners, aliens and strangers, exiles. Those are all words that are used to describe us. But it's not trying to make us uncomfortable. It's actually trying to reveal that we have this eternal citizenship as participants in the kingdom of heaven. That never goes away. You can move countries. You could change citizenships. You could you could do anything on this earth and your citizenship in heaven remains. Wherever you live, wherever you go, whatever language you speak, wherever you happen to be born, that is overall that we are a part of this, this nation of God. And so as exiles, we looked at Daniel and talked about that. What did it look like for Israel to be transplanted into Babylon? We looked at Proverbs. What does it look like for, uh, for us to have a wisdom that is not from this world, that's a different kind of wisdom, that's God's way of doing the world, the way of doing life? And then we went into 1 Peter. Peter calls us in his letter, he says, uh, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. And if you like maps, you look, you look at a map where modern day Turkey is, where modern day Greece is, and you just see these nations and these regions that are being talked about. And it's a big area. This is not Peter writing to one church. This is Peter writing to 
I don't know, like Utah, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, and California, like the American Southwest. That's the kind of region that he's writing to. So all the churches, all the people in a big region, I have something that I want to share with you. And Peter walks through the gospel in a powerful way. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus, you've been born again to a living hope. You have new life, you have new family, you have new identity, you have a new way. You're being brought into this thing. And so you're being separated from the feudal ways of your forefathers. Those that came before you that did not know Jesus, well, they lived in a different way than than you're being called to live. But now that you know Jesus, you've been converted to a different way of life. So our our conversion, maybe you've heard that that term before, being converted from not following Jesus to following Jesus, that idea of of actually moving into a new way of life, a new way of thinking. It's not just our eternal salvation, although it is absolutely our eternal salvation. It changes the way that we live, the way that we see the world, the way that we go about being people. And Peter not only wants to say, it changes everything about who you are, but he also wants to walk us into how it changes, how we live. And so that's where we get to go today. We're going to look at some of the biggest identity statements that are said about you. Actually, this passage, I would say, is basically the core of Peter's letter. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 9 through 17. And this is where Peter harps on our identity. He makes sure that we understand who we are because of what Jesus has done. And then he begins the transition into how we live in light of that. What what does it affect? What does it change? What does it do to us to be the people of God in this world? So that's where we're at. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 9 through 17. Here we go. It says this. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. All right. Well, we got a lot to get into, so we're going to spend some time working our way through this. And this, the place that I want to start just to establish like the foundational reality of everything else that Peter says is that one phrase that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
That is Peter's summary statement of the gospel itself and what it has accomplished. You were in darkness and Jesus delivered you or brought you out of darkness and into light. So now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you stand in the light. Do you want to be in the light? I want to be in the light. That's just for those of you 90s kids that want to be in the light. All right. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Here's the thing about the light of Jesus. It's this picture of a world around us that is in darkness. John chapter 1 describes the darkness. And the light enters the darkness. And it overcomes, or the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus enters the world and it's like a pinprick of light and then it tears open the darkness and the darkness does not overcome the light. Everywhere Jesus goes, he brings the light of the world and he's illuminating what it means to be human, what it means to have eternal life, what it means to know God, the creator of all things. And you have been delivered out of darkness and into light. Paul says something similar in Colossians chapter 1. He kind of says it in his language. He says this in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I bring that up because there's this past tense reality to it. When we testify to what Jesus has done, we say, Oh, I was in darkness. Oh, I was blind. Oh, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Oh, I was absolutely under the domain of darkness. But God being rich in mercy has made me alive together with Jesus Christ. But I've been brought into his marvelous light. But, and that is absolutely core to our understanding of the gospel. I was, fill in the blank, all of those things that have been said in the scriptures, but now I am, and then there's this new reality that we live in. It's important for us to hold on to that, to anchor ourselves in that, to know that that is true because there are times that we start to waver. There are times that we start to doubt. There are times that we start to struggle, and Peter wants to make sure you know that everything that needed to be done to take you out of darkness and place you in the light, it has been done. So when you place your faith in Jesus, finished, complete, done, over, you were in darkness and now you are in light. So that's at the core of what Peter's saying, this gospel reality. And now he wants to go in and he wants to talk about who you are. And keep in mind, the people that Peter's writing to, most of them would be Gentiles, most of them would be kind of Roman dispersion citizens. There, there are some Jews mixed in, but this is like the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And he's writing to them and he says some pretty astounding things. Let's take a look at these identity statements that Peter makes. In verse nine, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, then in verse 10, he says, you were not a people, but now you're God's people. And then he says, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those are six identity statements that he makes about you. I'm going to say them again. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. 
You're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession. You are God's people and you are mercy people. You've received mercy. Now, I want to take you real quickly to another passage in the scriptures. This is in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 is God's identity statement to Israel at Mount Sinai. He says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The language there is extremely similar. What Yahweh says to Israel in Exodus 19 and what Peter says to all y'all in 1 Peter chapter 2, they are extremely similar. Now, Israel and new believers had kind of some different contexts, especially if they were Gentiles that came into it. So if you're from Israel, your whole world is Yahweh. Yahweh is over all and through all and in all. He dictates your morality. He dictates the, the framework of your kingdom. You are a chosen people through the family of Abraham. They considered themselves a giant family because their forefathers were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they, they knew what tribe they were from. There was an element of, I know which family group I'm in. I am one of the brothers and sisters of Israel. There was this sense of family. And so that was the entire context of Judaism, is that it's brought into this cohesive system. And so then you have these outsiders they're starting to come to faith in Jesus. People like Cornelius in the book of Acts. And these, these people who have no Jewish background, but they start to find interest in Jesus and they believe that he's the Messiah. And ultimately the apostles realize, oh yeah, this is what Jesus said when he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, out beyond our borders and our people group. And when Jesus told them, go into all nations and make disciples, he was telling them, I want you to expand my family beyond the borders of Israel, and I want all people to experience my grace, and I want them to know my name. And so when you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're baptizing them into the family of God. That's what Jesus instructed his apostles to do. And so now Peter is writing this letter to people, to you and to me, and he's saying this, saying everything that was true about Israel as God's chosen people is true about you. You are a chosen race. You are a part of the family of God. When you think of that, that word race in this context, that people group, that ethnos, I want you to think of the idea of Jew and Gentile. That was kind of the, the two major breakdowns, for, at least for the Jewish audience within the Roman Empire. They had a ton of different uh, races, a ton of different people groups represented because Rome just continued to permeate the earth and they would overtake nation states. And so they had tons of skin colors in Rome. They had tons of people from lots of places that were under the Roman authority. And Peter's writing and he says, you followers of Jesus, regardless of your skin color, you are a chosen race. Regardless of your heritage, you are one family under God. It says you are holy nation. Oh, I skipped over royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. 
Think of being a priest, and Israel is called a priestly nation. That's kind of the idea of Exodus 19, is that they would be this kingdom of priests. I want you to represent my name to the world. That's what God is saying when he calls them a kingdom of priests. You're going to be my, my priests to the world. You're going to stand in the gap between the world and me. All of Israel is a priesthood. I know that within Israel there were priests. That's not what God was talking about in Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, he was telling Israel, all of you are my priesthood. You represent me to the world. And now Peter is saying that to all followers of Jesus. You represent me to the world. You are my name bearers to the world. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Okay, Israel was God's nation. They were his people. It had borders and boundaries. It had government. It had laws to operate under. There was a sense of a theocracy where Israel was under this, this divine instruction that God would instruct the kings through the prophets and he would, he would carry out his will when those kings and those prophets were in obedience to him. They would carry out his will. And he's essentially saying to people that are now under a different governance, and this is where we'll, we'll talk about some of the complexities of this, under a different governance than Israel, he's saying, actually, you are a holy nation. So I want you to think about this for just a second. Peter is writing to people in the Roman Empire, but he's also writing beyond that. He's writing to us. And when I say us, I don't mean us in this parking lot. I mean us here, our friends at Red Point Church in South Africa, our friends at Well of Life Church in Dubai, our friends in Nepal, our friends in Southeast Asia, our brothers and sisters around the world, we are a holy nation. And in this moment, Peter is emphasizing the reality that yes, you are a part of, at that time, the world's foremost global power, the Roman Empire, but there is a greater nation that exists and that is the kingdom of God. You are a holy nation. You as a people belong to you're citizens of this kingdom of God. You're one nation under God. All believers worldwide. Then he says that you're a people for his own possession. You belong to God. He's essentially saying that there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. That, that there's nobody, that there's no tiered entry into being Jesus' people. So if you were Jewish and a Christian, you were not an accelerated Christian than a Gentile Christian. He's saying, look, you are a people for God's own possession. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, if you follow Jesus, you are his people, period. This is the chosen people of God are those that put their faith in Jesus. He continues on and he says, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Again, with the past tense, the defining reality of who you are is mercy people. We walk in the mercy of God. We live in the mercy of God. We have received the mercy of God. Now, here's why this is so critical. Peter's gonna get into playing out how all that identity impacts the life that you live. And he's gonna pick, he's gonna start by picking three 
extremely tense situations that believers in that day might find themselves in, and he's going to play out what it looks like to follow Jesus in those circumstances. First, he's going to go to being a part of a government that is not led by God. Okay, so that's where he's going to start, is with a government. Then he's going to go to a master-slave relationship, and he's going to talk to the slaves in a master-slave relationship, in particular, an ungodly and unjust uh, slave owner or master. And then he's going to go and he's going to talk to the wives of unbelieving husbands, women who were a part of a, a marriage relationship with a husband that did not know Jesus. He's going to talk specifically to them. So what he's doing is he's saying, uh, you ever do an even when statement if you're a business owner and you're talking about your core values and these core values, they're core to us, even when we're pushed to the, to the edges of what it means to be who we are, that's what Peter is doing in this particular statement. He's saying, this is who we are, even when we have a government like the one that we have. This is who we are even when we're slaves in an unjust relationship with a slave owner. This is who we are even when we are wives and we have an unbelieving husband who may treat us not like a faithful follower of Jesus. He pushes us to the edge to try and stretch our understanding of what it means to be faithful followers of Jesus. So let's kind of look at those particular situations and talk about them. So, the to-dos of being a follower of Jesus. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, this is verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So the starting point that Peter wants you to operate on is there are going to be desires in you. And those desires, they actually come from a sinful place. There's part of this, this kind of like residue of being a part of the world. The flesh is oftentimes what the scriptures call it, and it's going to desire something in you. And part of our job as followers of Jesus is to let Jesus win over the desires of the flesh. And so he says, I, I urge you to abstain from the desires of the flesh or the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Uh, just so you understand, Gentiles in this context is actually not Jew-Gentiles. This would be his way of talking about unbelievers. He just still uses that language. So when an unbeliever sees you, Peter's desire is that your conduct, your behavior would be honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, okay, so this is the reality, is that an unbeliever is going to look at the behavior of a believer and call us out for doing evil but when they do that, Peter says, I want your conduct to be honorable. And so when they speak against you, then they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's ultimate desire is that we would live in such a way that it absolutely silences the accusations of those that don't know Jesus against the way that we live. The highest integrity, the highest purity, the highest honor the highest honesty, the highest generosity. Peter's actually trying to raise the virtue level of followers of Jesus so that those in the unbelieving world would have to look at us and just say, okay, there's, there's a difference there. There's something going on 
that we can't explain. They live differently even when we speak evil against them and call them out for being evildoers. Jesus says something similar, and Peter is kind of riffing off of Jesus. If you read through 1 Peter, and then you read through the Gospels, you realize that much of what Peter writes is riffing off of things that Jesus said. He's, he's just basically commenting. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. He wanted us to live outwardly faithful lives so that when people look at us, they actually they praise God because they see us. Now, here's where Peter gets very specific. He says this in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, this passage has got a lot of play in the last four months. A lot of people are talking about what do we do with what Peter just said. And the reality is there was a different government in place in Rome than there is here. As part of the nature of the world that we're in is that the, the Bible's written into a context, but it also has this ability to speak into other contexts. Otherwise, we would look at this as a historical document, not as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so Peter writes and he says, I want you to be subject to every human institution, whether it be the emperor. He actually expands beyond Rome specific. So at the time of writing, if the dating is correct, when people look at this and put it in the 60s, uh, Nero was the emperor. He had not yet started his wild persecution of believers where he starts burning them at the stake and he starts putting them in the, in the arena for the lions to devour. It's not at that point yet, but it will be in about 10 years where believers are killed for sport. And Peter understands the world that they're in. Persecution has begun. It has started to take shape, but it hasn't reached its kind of like peak in the Roman Empire yet. But he's writing to his people and he's saying, look, I want you to be subject to every human institution. What's the alternative? The alternative is to be rebellious to every human institution. And ultimately what Peter's doing is he's trying to help us understand that we now, as followers of Jesus, this is why he started with everything else. You are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, because we now have Yahweh who rules us over all, through all, and in all. He is our guiding force in life. And what that has done is that has now freed us up to do citizenship in the world in a different way. We are released from the bondage to this world. So Peter writes and he says, you can actually be subject to the governing authorities because you have Yahweh, you have the eternal kingdom that is done and finished. And now you can operate here and now in a missionary context. You can operate here and now as somebody whose entire objective is to demonstrate the power and the goodness of who God is. And he says, here's how you're going to do this. You're going to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, that, that question of what does it mean to be subject is a huge question mark. So just to get extremely practical, 
In the United States of America, in the democracy that we live in, you can be subject to the governing authorities and you can still disagree with them. That's actually part of how it's all written together, that there's the dialogue, there's the interaction, there's the way of going about things that we don't all have to fall in line. It's not a dictatorship. We have freedom to vote differently. And we have freedom to speak out differently. That's part of what's been given to us in the framework of this nation. So what Peter was writing into actually has a bit of a different context than where we're at. So does that mean that we don't have to follow what Peter says? Oh, well, America is different than Rome. But actually what Peter is writing to goes way beyond any specific government. I want you to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In other words, you're not just being subject for the sake of being good citizens. You're being subject so that you can represent the Lord exceptionally well. Meaning, I want you to go into your life in whatever nation you are in. Whether that is Iran or North Korea or Iraq or South Africa or the United States of America or Canada or Mexico or Costa Rica, wherever it is that you live, I want you to be defined by your faithfulness to God, and that can be expressed as being a good citizen of that nation. Being a diligent citizen of that nation. Here's where Peter expands on this. Verse 16, he says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Essentially, what Peter was getting at is the temptation exists. And this is where he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. The desire is there to see God not only on his heavenly throne, but on a physical earthly throne. We saw Israel battle with this when they were wrestling with the Messiah. We want Jesus to be crowned king and to overthrow Rome and get them out of Israel. There's a desire to overthrow, and Peter is calling on believers to say, that's not our game. That's not the ultimate outcome that we're going for. We are not trying to institute some government here on earth that will rule in God's name. That's not the objective as followers of Jesus. The objective as followers of Jesus is to proclaim his name, proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into light, regardless of the governing context that we're in. And you have been set free to do that. You as a follower of Jesus are free to live boldly in the name of Jesus in any governing context. And part of how you would exemplify your faithfulness to Jesus actually has to do with being a good citizen. Okay, we're going to keep going, and then we'll kind of close out on this. Peter finishes off this section, and he says in verse 17, he says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That's real rain. When you start to hear it patter, that's, this is the rainstorm that we've all been waiting for. So, Kyle, you were wrong before, and you're correct now. It's raining. Thank you. I appreciate your repentance. As Peter writes and he says, honor everyone, fear God, uh, love the brotherhood, honor the emperor. He's trying to communicate in summary. Here's what you've been set free to do. 
If you're going to go about being subject, one of the things that's going to define your subjection to the governing authorities is the honor that you are going to display for everyone. This is a great, if you're looking for an anchor as a, an American citizen, here's a great place to go. It's like, yes, we have freedom to disagree. We can speak our voice. We can vote. We can do all of those things. And here is the tone and tenor that it must live in if we're going to bring Jesus into the conversation, and that is to do it with honor. To honor everyone is core to expressing faithfulness as followers of Jesus in the world that we're in. So when given the right to disagree, like we are given in the United States of America, we are not given the right to dishonor. We as followers of Jesus are called into a different way of approaching what it means to be a citizen with honor. Then Peter says, love the brotherhood. And this kind of goes into even that nature of what it means to be the family of God. I want you to have a deep love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you to long for there to be unity among the faithful followers of Jesus. I want you to, that, to, that should be a guiding reality. Love the brotherhood. Love the family of God. Deeply desire for there to be unity, or as Paul says in Ephesians, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Peter's writing, and he's saying, look, I want that to be a core defining reality of your faithful expression of citizenship, is that you love the family of God. And he says, fear God. He said this just a little bit before in chapter 1. He said, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And here he says, fear God. There's this picture of what it is that we're supposed to do that above all, we see God in his role, in his authority over any, any human institution. We trust him. This is why we can live freely. It's because we trust God. This is why we can go through the ebb and flow of the American political system and we can continue to live faithfully no matter what the context because the reality is we fear God. We trust him. We are his chosen people. We are elect exiles. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. And so we can walk through this life and we can say, you know what? I live under the awe and fear of who God is. I trust him. He is over all and through all and in all. There's nothing that can happen in this world that will derail the plan of God. Let me say that one more time. There's nothing that can happen in this world that will derail the plan of God. He is over all and through all and in all. We sing a song, oh God, the glory is yours, the kingdom has come, the battle is over, because we are declaring that what Jesus accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection, it set a victory. And we live in a victorious state, not a defeated state, but a victorious state as the people of God. And so we live in fear of God. And then Peter closes it out by saying, honor the emperor. 
I just want to close this out by saying Peter's writing a letter to a group of people who are about to be killed for their faith by that emperor, and he's saying, I want you to honor the emperor. I just, I, I actually, I don't know how much I want to preach on this particular phrase. I maybe just want to pose what in the world is Peter trying to do to his followers of Jesus when he says, you know that guy that's about to kill you? That guy that's going to humiliate you and mock you and torment you? That guy that's going to zero in on you because you follow Jesus and he's going to say, those are the people whose lives I want to end and I want to do it in a public way and I want to do it in a way that humiliates them to the nth degree. And Peter says, all right, brothers and sisters in Jesus, because he's on the throne, something changes in us to your dying breath you get to speak honor of the man that's going to end your physical life. I just, I just want to make sure that we hear God's way is different than the passions of our flesh. The passions of our flesh would love to speak out against, but the way of God is to bring honor even in the face of humiliation and persecution. And to honor means to speak it. When it says honor your father and mother, it's not like an emotion. When the Old Testament says honor your father and mother, it's not like feel good about your father and your mother. It's actually to speak honor to them. It's to manifest honor in some way, even to the point of financial support, but that's not where we're necessarily going here. It's talking about actually speaking honor over your parents. That's honor your father and mother. And this is saying, honor your emperor. Speak honor about him, even in the face of the worst of the worst of the worst. So what Peter's saying this week, what he's going to say next week, my dad will be preaching the next section about the master-slave relationship, and then I'll be back on November 8th to preach in the husband-wife relationship. And in each of those contexts, Peter stretches to the very edge of what's comfortable and says, I want it to be godly, even at the edges of the most uncomfortable situations that we know about. And that's, the, that's where the rubber meets the road of being a follower of Jesus. If you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, something changes about how you interact with the world. You're set free, but you don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You use it to say, how can I serve my God and my king and walk in honor and love in the world that I have been placed in? Whatever world that is. Being a follower of Jesus is supposed to actually shape you into a faithful and diligent citizen of whatever nation you are in because you are a part of a greater nation that needs to represent everywhere it goes. That's what Peter's calling us to. This is a massive, massive invitation. So what I want to do is I want to pray for us. We're going to respond. When we preach the word of God, we respond with singing. We respond with praying. We respond with giving. And we respond with communion. And so I want, to, I want to actually pray for us to respond. And even as we go into these things, the words that we sing, the things that we pray for, even, even giving, it's the sense of allegiance. It's a sense of, God, I give you. 
out of what you've provided for me, I return to you what belongs to you. There's that, that sense of allegiance where we're elevating God and his story to he is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that's what we're saying with our worship, with our prayer, with our giving, and with communion. As we're demonstrating in our lives, with our words, with our, our whole being that Jesus is Lord. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We lift up your name. We ask that you would be glorified. I pray for uh, the next 10 days, and we'll extend it to 30 to 40 days for however long it takes to count things up and figure things out. But I just, I pray, Lord, for a deep sense of honor to pour out the followers of Jesus. Lord, that our words would be altered because of your presence in our lives that our behavior would be altered because of your presence in our lives, that the way that we process through voting, Lord Jesus, would be altered because you are present in our lives, and that the way that we represent you to the world around us, that it would be totally and completely shaped by the mercy that you've shown us because we weren't a people that had received mercy, but now we have. And something's changed in us, Jesus, and we just we want to be dispensers of the mercy that you've given to us. So help us, Lord, to walk differently because of your presence in our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.